Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. My name is Matt, and this is the final installment of our series on Clayton Crockett's book, Energy and Change, A New Materialist Cosmotheology. It's been a lot of fun exploring this book with Matt, uh, Matt Valor, that is. And yeah, I just want to take a moment to thank Matt for his friendship and being such an incredible conversation partner. Uh, the, the collaboration has felt very meaningful to me and yeah, that's, that's no small thing. I also want to thank Jeff Robbins, Patrick Carlson and Mary Jane Rubenstein for the engagement. I really can't imagine achieving the same kind of, I don't know, interpretive thickness, I guess. Uh, without their their contributions, their perspectives, it's been really meaningful for me to engage in this way uh, that feels more communal uh, or participatory. It feels important. So anyway, I hope you enjoy the conversation, and I, I hope you buy the book and relate to it in, in your own way. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. And... Here's Clayton Crockett. Peace. Hey. Hey, Matt. How's it going? Okay, good. It's good to see you. I like the beard. Thanks. Have you had one before? I've never seen you with one. Yeah, I've had it before, but it may just look a little different. Hey, Matt. Hey, Clayton. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. All right. So, um, wow, we made it. Uh, we made it to the end of the book. It's a tremendous journey. Clayton, thanks for writing this book. It was brilliant, generated a lot of interesting discussion between uh, Matt and I. And, you know, I've had some other thoughts since. Um, and so, yeah, it's just great to have this chance to talk to you about it. I'm curious about the what the reception has been like. When we first talked to you, you were traveling, you were in India, giving extended seminar on this stuff. And I know you've done some other things like that. Has there been anything that's surprised you about the response? I mean, first of all, just let me say thank you so much for doing this. I mean, it really is extraordinary to have such a thorough engagement with the book and going by each chapter, as well as inviting all the, the guests on. So really wonderful to have that kind of uh, engagement and response. And um, I've had some other people write to me and I've had, you know, sort of talking to people and uh, colleagues um, sort of give me, you know, good word of mouth and stuff. I haven't seen any reviews in print, although I know a couple of people have talked about writing reviews. And then, like I said, last February, I was in India to give a week-long course that was um, largely based on the book. And then I just got back from South Korea, where I was presenting at a couple conferences, giving a lecture. And this apparently, like a lot of the, the folks in South Korea, academics are aware of Catherine Keller and Catherine Keller's work. And then I guess through her, sort of became aware of my work and read this book and got interested and excited uh, about it and, and invited me to to come there and also to do like a 
research project with the Korean Research Foundation that'll be with Catherine and I, and then four scholars in South Korea. So we'll have them come over here, hopefully in 2025, we may go over there, but also kind of collaborating and writing articles together and stuff. So that's really exciting. And, and I think a lot of it is, is kind of, you know, getting a sense of globally in, in India and South Korea, but also other places, getting a sense of new materialism more broadly than than maybe the traditional typical you know North American European, and then seeing what kinds of things it can do, uh, especially in terms of in terms of energy. So and then energy opening up to a kind of religious and even theological register. Yeah. So um, my understanding is you've listened to at least some of our conversations that we've had about the book. They're fantastic. Yeah. Oh, great. What, what, what would you say we got either right or wrong? Or what would you want to kind of lean in on giving further clarification or, or explanation? Yeah, I mean, overall, again, I thought it was wonderful. I really appreciate the engagement. I thought you guys did a great job with chapter one. I mean, you really got at what was at the heart of that, which was sort of how Deleuze theorized um, this kind of non-equilibrium, non-linear thermodynamics in a way in difference and repetition that accorded with some of the things that were happening in thermodynamics. And also just, you know, obviously the ways in which as a non-scientist and, and not knowing the mathematics and a lot of the technical stuff, trying to understand the ideas, work through the ideas and really uh, talk about them in, in interesting ways. So uh, I think that that was really fantastic. I, I also felt like with Mary Jane Rubinstein, who I also love and is one of my favorite people in the whole world, uh, great engagement with the last chapter. I also thought Petra was fantastic and Jeff was great. I think that if I had to say one thing would be chapter two, I felt like either could have used a guest or um, I could have done more. I mean, I think it's, I mean, I mostly blame myself because I think that that's the one chapter that could have been cooked a little bit more, could have had a little bit more. And I've read more and sort of thought more about some of these things. And I have reasons why I, I set it up in the in the way that I did. And there's certain criticisms about the structure, but I don't think it was as clear or as strong as as maybe it could have been and and possibly some of the other chapters. Well, there's always the second edition. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I also had somebody send me a list of all the sort of errata. And so it's like, you just, again, cringe when you see, you know, all these, oh, you know, yeah. but it's like hoping that, you know, yeah, if you can, if you can do a, another publication of this and correct some of these, that would be, fun. as I recall, I think I picked up maybe one or two of those things, but you know, that, that happens. Um, yeah. It wasn't a distraction for me, but. Well, I'm just interested in those, in those comments, because um, I think for us, chapter two was the most difficult one to kind of feel our way through and I think from memory we sort of blamed you by saying that you didn't put enough handrails in the chapter and I think I always felt like that was a bit unfair I mean I, it did feel reading it like it could have been edited slightly differently but I do I also felt like we didn't get under the skin of it properly um and you know I've done some reading on Deacon and um those kind of broader questions of the emergence of life. I mean, it'd be interesting to know, is there something from that chapter that you felt in our overall account of going through the book, was there a core idea that we missed as a result of, of not being able to really handle that one as well? 
Well, I guess the way I was thinking about it was like, I tried to set up chapter one, like a little bit more explicitly, like here's the organization, here's the setup, here's what I'm trying to do epistemologically and theoretically and philosophically, obviously Deleuze. So with chapter two, I'm also trying to talk about that in a way, but I don't really get to that until sort of, you know, towards the middle or towards the end. And you did, you did pick up on the crucial notion of Malibu with the transcendental that she does in, in After Finitude or Before Tomorrow and talking about Mayas, who's After Finitude as well as Kant's epigenesis. So, and then obviously getting into Deacon towards the end. But I guess what I wanted to do, if I wanted to sort of justify what I was doing, was the idea of life as being very much chance, as very much being arbitrary, and kind of sort of trying to tell a story about that and have readers, they're thinking about evolution in interesting ways, but also thinking about how bioenergetics shows us evolution in a different way. And then, of course, the, the engagement with Stephen Jay Gould and his huge, massive tome on the structure of evolutionary theory, as well as some of the work of Margulis, some of the stuff on bacteria. Uh, since reading Merlin Sheldrake's great book on entangled life with fungi and mycorial networks, and I would have loved to add some of that in. Also, some of Lane's later work, he has a great book on the secret chemistry of life and death, where he goes into more detail about, about metabolism. So in some ways, trying to sort of get to the structure later, and that could be an excuse, but it also could be like, you know, here's this interesting thing that happened, and then try to make sense of it, if that makes sense. It just seems so incredibly unbelievable, the story, and Margulis was the first to point it out, the endosymbiosis, that it seems like this tiny one-celled thing swallowed another, partly swallowed another one-celled thing, and it kind of got stuck in there. And then that like led to multicellular things and, and eventually to, to us. And, and Lane says, this might've only happened once, or at least might've only successfully worked once. And I don't know if that's true, but it is an extraordinary kind of thing. And then the last thing in terms of Deacon, I mean, obviously, I, I appreciate his book. I think it's fantastic. I think it's really, really good. But I was also trying to criticize him at the same time. And sometimes, like, you know, Mary Jane said, you know, I, I very much try to appreciate and affirm people that I'm writing about. And sometimes if I do make a critique, it can be a little bit subtle. But I thought that Deacon made too strong of a, of a distinction between what he called teleodynamics and morphodynamics. So that I think that with morphodynamics, which is sort of in the first chapter, there's this, this creation of form. There's this like something new. There's this ratcheting, these constraints, which I thought was really exciting. But I think that occurs even before what he's calling the teleodynamics, which is why I went back into some of the, the subatomic stuff. Because I think that already at the level of subatomic particles, molecules, you know, there's just, there's some way that they sort of self-organize or congregate or get together in a way that then makes it to where what happens later isn't just like an accident or is not as random as maybe it appears to be if you don't have any kind of understanding of their of their history. So, I mean, again, the overarching philosophy is Deleuze. Uh, Malibu may be the sort of the minor philosopher throughout the, the book, and then trying to think about these chapters as plateaus. So it's not a it's not a teleology, it's not a development in the sense of we get better and better. It's a 
what if we take energy sort of heuristically as the starting point, and then we look at all these things from this vantage point and see like a plateau of, of some physical systems, thermodynamic systems, you know, living systems, organisms, political, economic systems, and then, you know, spirit or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. Looking at it in that way, I could easily see this being a uh, pun intended, a series. There could be additional plateaus. Why not? One of the big ones I did talk about was kind of like a, a psychoanalytic energy, which obviously I thought about and read about. Uh, Lusa Rigori has this great book on the new culture of energy beyond East and West, where she talks about kind of like energy in a kind of psychoanalytic, psychological, uh, male, female, um, also with her work on yoga, but her background in psychoanalysis. And I think with Zizek, with um, Lacan, I mean, Freud, there's a lot of stuff that we could do with energy in that context as well. Yeah, I picked up that book because I think you mentioned it when we were doing the uh, the Radical Theology Seminar. I cracked it, but I haven't gotten too far in it, but it's there. But I appreciate the sort of, there's an insistent resistance to uh, any kind of teleological arguments you were kind of talking about organization at a primordial level before you even get to something like life. And, you know, you can make, give an account of that as you get these self-organizing forms for more and more efficient gradient reduction. So you, you end up with things like hierarchies and societies to use more Whiteheadian language. And you could have a discussion there about like evolution and emergence and stuff like that. Maybe we want to talk about that more, but those kinds of forms, those political forms, are born out of this primordial, what I understand to be a kind of an anarchic process. I'm often conflicted between my more anarchic and my more Marxist tendencies. And one of the things that came up during the conversation was what implications does this have for how we think about the state? And I know that wasn't something you necessarily centered on, but I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it. Yeah, um, that's a great question. I think that we could also talk about Badiou, um, whose philosophy I sort of resist in some ways, but I do appreciate it very much. And he says, you know, like like he's sort of against the state and this idea that the state can't think. And so what, what happens, you know, what's really exciting that happens, which I think is kind of anarchic and Deleuze calls it a it's kind of sacred anarchy. And Caputo writes about that as well, saying that that these interesting things that are happening in these events, whether they're big or small or tiny or whatever, don't necessarily occur at the level of the state because the, the state is about containing and controlling it. And then if we think about the development of the state form, especially in terms of like imperial form and uh, and then the, the you know the markets that that then sort of follow with trade and stuff, thinking about Caratani's work on the systems of production to the systems of exchange, how we kind of get locked into thinking about this is the only kind of form or the only kind of way in which society can be set up. And that's why, you know, for Karatani, this kind of clan form of society is, is very interesting because it contrasts with that. And then also how there could be different experiments and different possibilities and different ways of thinking sort of beyond the state as the states try to desperately cling to their power and control as what we could think of as this situation of capitalist neoliberal economic growth starts to slow down. And that sets off, as part of my argument, this chain of financialization of capital, concentration of wealth. You can't 
grow in the same way as efficiently from the earth, from the extraction of resources. And so then you have to take it from other, other people and other countries. And you have this incredible sort of concentration of wealth, but it doesn't seem like that can continue indefinitely either. And all of this is happening in the shadow of climate change and global warming. So you're, you're thinking about these crises and you're seeing how, or at least I'm seeing how we're thinking about how the state isn't really set up to respond to this. And I'm kind of critical and doubtful about the state. I do appreciate Marx and you know learn from Marxism a great deal. One of the reasons I like the word materialism is because it has this kind of Marxist political inflection almost. But yeah, it is an anarchic Marxism. It's not deterministic. And I think there's evidence Marx's thought itself wasn't really deterministic in the way that it was sometimes seen in terms of this historical evolution of the proletariat and then the revolution and et cetera, et cetera. I mean, I thought it was interesting what Jeff was saying too, I think he sharpened the opposition a little bit too much between what Bataille calls a general economy and a particular economy, because the particular economies aren't closed, but we act as if they're closed, or at least we act within these societies, these frameworks, these systems, where there is this kind of tendency towards something like an equilibrium. There is this tendency towards you know, something like uh, trying to to fashion it, to set it, to control it, but then it's always within the context of, of larger general economy, and it's like you can't really escape either one. And so, struggling with just the fact that you can't avoid either, and in some ways they're both bad, in some ways they're both good, and it's hard to evaluate that in any kind of ethical, moral, beneficial sense. But you know that's also life, that's also death. And then getting back to this whole question of like nature and trying to hold on to as strongly as I could both sides of the, you know, we can't change our nature. We're locked in. This is happening. The planet's already warming. We're destroying ourselves and our nature has changed. And there's still things that, that we can be doing and, and need to be doing. And there's a kind of vitality and urgency, but also opportunity in that and trying to hold on to both very strongly, both together. Mm. I mean, that felt like a huge, huge thing for us in our discussions, that, that, that wrestling. I mean, you would have heard us wrestling with that, trying to figure that out. I mean, it'd be good to talk more about that. I think from what you're saying in, in response to, to thinking about the state, I mean, it, it felt like what you're doing in the book is describing processes, trying to give better conceptual tools to describe processes. I didn't feel like you were coming down on the side of any particular, you know, this is the structure we should aim for, which I think is interesting in the context of talking about how a structure is maintained. I mean, they're constantly undergoing their own dissolution, but sometimes that perpetual dissolution holds them together for a while. Um, do you think that that applies to ideas of the state as well? I mean, is that a, a, does that happen at that level of emergence? Obviously, I think it can. I think there's something about the state. I think there's something about the institution. We could talk about the academy, the church, um, any institution that's inertial, that's conservative, that's trying to maintain and perpetuate itself, and often in problematic conservative ways that resist change. And um, usually the, the real interesting things are happening sort of along the margins. So I guess 
my, I mean, two things. One is just to acknowledge, you always get the practical question, what should we do? And, you know, as an intellectual, as an academic, the whole point is that I don't know what we should do. I mean, we need to be doing things, obviously. I'm trying to help us understand, like you said, to, to understand what's going on in the broadest sense, the best way I can, and maybe give us tools to think about things, but I'm not the person to say, oh, this is what we do in a very practical way. But like you said, or at least it seems to connect with some of what you're saying, Matt, is that one of the things I learned from evolution, from thinking about Darwin and reading Malibu, is that adaptation doesn't occur after selection. That is, organisms don't seem to adapt, and I don't know that societies do as such, or this something like the state does as such. That is, the things that happen are these kinds of like, again, on the margins maybe, but experiments of different kinds of practices, different kind, ways of thinking, different ways of doing things. And we could think about post-sustainability, we could think about permaculture, we could think about planting trees, we could think about different kinds of experiments and ways of living that we don't know what's going to happen because as the selection happens, it's going to cut off a whole bunch of things. The adaptation has to be happening now. We have to be experimenting with different kinds of possibilities, not knowing what, if any, are going to be adaptive in relationship to the new environment. And we keep learning more and more historically about the role that climate has changed in the evolution of all of life, including human beings, including human societies and, and cultures and institutions. talking about the ambiguity of entropy and uh, how that sort of translates into uh, politics in certain ways. I want to kind of come back to that ambiguity that on one hand we can't change, but on the other hand we must and we do change. Is that because our nature is change that we can't change our nature? I mean, that sounds very circular. I mean, it's never a complete circle or a, yeah, yeah. a fixed, you know, pure circle. But yeah, there is a kind of circularity there. Or there's a kind of uh, recursiveness there. And I think that that has something to do with it because every time we make a choice or every time we do something, that's the ratcheting. Something gets locked in, which makes it harder to change. And so it's almost like thinking about it in terms of uh, Chinese traditions. You know, Confucianism is this cultivation, you know, the self cultivation, making yourself, you could say, a, a humane, good person, a junsa. Uh, trying to cultivate ran or humaneness or goodness, you know, making yourself a work of art, making your society harmonious, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's the Taoist part that's always like trying to undo that. And it's about trying to undo that so that you can preserve and maybe even retrieve the possibilities of, of doing something else. And I don't know that they can work except in concert with each other. And so I think that we could just at the level of, of physics and thermodynamics, thinking about the statistics and the ways in which these get understood is statistical so that it's never completely free. It's never completely determined, but there's a fundamental indeterminacy at the heart of reality. And yet at the larger scale levels, it's just probable that certain kinds of things could happen. 
the consistency or solidity of this table, for example, which isn't really solid at the level of the electrons and the atoms and stuff, but the fact that this laptop that I'm using could like fall through the table, the chances of so many of those particles occupying those kinds of states is just vastly astronomically uh, unlikely, but still not zero technically. So you approach a kind of predictability, you approach a kind of probabilistic near certitude based on what's been happening. And you try to understand things on that level. And you try to say, this is what seems like where we are based on where we've been. And then what are the possibilities or what seem to be possible for us to think, but also to do. And that doing is always a struggle. But part of that doing is the communication, which we're doing now, which obviously uses up resources, it uses up fossil fuels, it uses electricity, it uses lots and lots of other things, um, you know, and you have this whole network of what we call the internet. But this communication is an action, is an activity, is meaningful, because something material is happening, as well as, as mental, and maybe even spiritual, across the kinds of connections that we're having, and that that you've already had around this book, and of course, so many others, and so many other great podcasts, and so many other great conversations, and so many ideas that are being generated and, and germinated, and we don't know where one would take seed, and something could could fruit, um, when I was in Korea, I started off the keynote lecture I gave at Wonkwang University in Ixon, citing a podcast that you did with Merlin Sheldrake, or you posted a talk that he gave where he said, crisis is the crucible for change, because I wanted to affirm that and I wanted to endorse that and I wanted to put that right there at the beginning. You know, crisis is the crucible for change, both in a negative sense, hmm. but also in a positive sense, or at least as positive as, as we can get. So what we're doing here, having this conversation, we could talk about that as work in a energy sense that we're trying to use our agency to constrain energy flows in certain ways to achieve some outcome that broadly speaking, we conceive as useful or productive to what we want to happen in the world. Um, so what I find really interesting about that is the idea that everything is constantly tending towards equilibrium and so, you know, it's going to lose its form. I mean, this is maybe a completely unanswerable question, but I suppose it raises the thing of like when you're trying to do work, presumably something, some excess looked at kind of post-structurally, I suppose, some excess is by doing this thing that we're trying to make productive some excess is, is destroyed. Uh, and is the excess always more than the work? Do, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and, and some excess is produced. I think that the modern idea of classical thermodynamics is using energy, mostly fossil fuels, to do work and thinking about that as useful energy, thinking about that as positive energy or what Gibbs calls free energy. And then that drives the motors and the engines of, of capitalism. And then the entropy is the cost. And so there's always a, a cost. And yet at the same time, if we, like you said, post-structurally sort of rethink, reformulate, it's not just equilibrium, but it's the maximization of entropy production. So it's about setting up new gradients or maybe even trying to ease some of the gradients. You know, we've created this unbelievable 
metabolic rift between, you know, sort of human civilization and the natural world. And we know that's not sustainable long term. We know that's not permanently sustainable. We're, we're using more and more energy to maintain this gradient differential. But at some point, that's going to collapse. And that collapse is probably going to be devastating and in many ways already is. But are there ways that we can create new gradients that would soften that blow? And so thinking about work differently, you know, beyond sort of capitalist production in a very linear sense, thinking about excess differently, because the excess is both the product of the work and also the consumption or destruction of the work in, in Bataille's terms. And really not answering your question, but trying to sort of have new lenses or maybe new ways to think about it that possibly could help us confront the situation that we've created and are creating and are kind of reaping from the modern industrial world that is consuming itself and in many ways consuming us. That was really helpful for me. Yeah, um, that, those gradients that you that we interject to soften Presumably you're saying they're not just economic gradients or political gradients, they're also what we would call spiritual gradients or other types. I wonder if, um, to uh, return to anarchism for a moment, not as a thing to do, it's not a practical matter so much as a method for what you're just describing, Clayton. I wonder if it's a uh, theft would be a, <laughs> a good method. Like, for example, right now, I am officially on the clock. I'm stealing from my employer and I'm fine with that. They're not going to listen to this. <laughs> um, I'm just saying, like, uh, do you think that's one way to siphon off certain kinds of energetic flows and, and redirect them? I, I don't know. I'm just kind of spitballing here. Yeah. I mean, obviously, there's a political aspect to this. I mean, especially when we think about property and all the damage properties caused in the ways in which property gets valued over life, and then the stealing of property and the destruction of property being a sort of liberating kind of process, as well as, like you said, stealing from, from work. And even just going back to the, the quote by Whitehead that may have been in your mind, but certainly is always in mind, where, in mind where he says, life is robbery. We're always stealing. We're always stealing resources. We're always appropriating breath, air, water, food, nutrients, um, some things from something else, whether it's living, usually often it's living, but also non-living things. And so acknowledging that, facing that, and maybe there, maybe as, as one of my colleagues, uh, Korean-American scholar Gia Sophia Oh, talked about the idea of trying to figure out what and who to rob right? What's the best way to rob? Because we're all robbing. So maybe we can do that a little bit more ethically, strangely enough. <laughs> and we're also hypocrites in thinking about Tim Morton's book on hyperobjects, where he says, you know, hyperobjects make us hypocrites. None of us are pure. None of us are paragons of virtue where we're consistent and the things that we do is always in accord with whatever ideal or whatever virtue or whatever plan. I mean, that's just the messy reality of the beings we are and the networks that we're in and the, the society that we have to exist in. So acknowledging that and trying to maybe make the best of it or slightly less bad of it. I do think that's a really profound insight because it's, um, I mean, that, that's one of those concepts that feels to me absolutely not in 
the sort of general consciousness of how we think about ethics. It, it, it seems to me there are good cultural ways in which we've become more accepting of how we're all hypocritical in some ways and all entangled. But I think the idea that we are all thieves, I don't think that's part of the consciousness at all because we don't we don't have any sense of um because we're in such a hyper individualized society that draws the boundaries around us so tightly more tightly than ever certainly more tightly than for a long time so it's hard to see the ways in which we are so entangled in those senses yeah um i was thinking of in the 1990s in the late 90s i was teaching courses at a few places before i got a tenure track job and like business ethics and you know like you give a little bit of overview oh here okay here's kant here's utilitarianism here's aristotelianism but you know here's these case studies and these case studies are always these like you know business capitalist methods. And again, it's like, you know, somebody's taking these pencils from work and, you know, are they a, a bad person? And so like, even if we justify that, we usually justify that individually. And in content terms, it's like, oh, I can steal this pencil and it's going to do good and it's going to help me, but everybody shouldn't. Of course not. You can't make that a maxim for everybody. And that's, you know, sort of for me, like the whole point of anarchy is no, everybody should be doing this, right? And it shouldn't just be pencils, but it should be, you know, all kinds of things. You know, you have to be careful a little bit how loudly you, you know, proclaim that. But yeah, it's 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 trying to sort of get out of the mindset that we're trained in as individuals, which is don't take, don't steal. And even if you do, and even if you justify it, that's always as an exception, not the rule. Yeah, it's, that's interesting. Thinking about the association, loose as it, it may be, between anarchism and the occult, there's a reason why you're not supposed to talk about that sort of stuff, right? It'll get you killed. <laughs> it's very practical. Um, somewhere you were talking about the more sort of apocalyptic valence of this. And the, um, towards the beginning of the book, you're talking about the Anthropocene and like, when does that start? Did it start at, in the axial age or with the discovery of tools or whatever? I thought it was interesting the way you framed it. Like, it doesn't matter where you kind of locate that event historically, but then you go on and later on and say this kind of pretty bold statement, I think, that the end of the world happened in 14, is it 1492? Is that the right year? I know that's not a question about the Anthropocene, but it's pretty apocalyptic statement. And it touches on another ambiguity that we've kind of been exploring, you know, there seems to be this deterministic aspect of your, your thought, but yet you're also very clear about resisting any kind of determinism. So, yeah, I mean, I think of it again in a Deleuzean sense of a kind of repetition of difference. And so each of these, you know, moments or dates or transitions or transformations in physics, you know, you could talk about a singularity because it's like a phase state or a phase change, like a difference that makes a, a bigger difference because, you you know, you, in terms of temperature, you're going along and it's just like 30 degrees, 31 degrees, 32 degrees. And then all of a sudden you go above the, the freezing point and you have this, this phase change with water, right? To where it's liquid, not solid. And so if you think about this, there's not any absolute origin. There's no RK. As far as we can go back, you know, we get back as far as we can go. And then we have to posit something like an origin, like a big bang, but even physicists are like, well, that might not be the beginning. And there might be multiple origins and there might be other universes and multiverse and all that stuff. So, you know, there's no origin, but we can point to certain transformations. And I think that trying to face the apocalypse that we can kind of see 
happening right in front of us. I'm also teaching Catherine Keller's book, Facing Apocalypse, right now, which is really interesting and powerful and profound and important. And I don't think that I can predict the future. I'm not trying to say, oh, this is going to happen. I'm just trying to say this seems to be what's happening now. And then in the light of what the you know earlier apocalypses and this i don't think we've ever fully grappled with or come you know i mean obviously people that have societies peoples that have, that have gone through that that have survived it or a kind of survival whatever that means of this you know apocalyptic interaction this genocidal interaction and then the genocidal transport of of so many african peoples to the new world to do the labor that the native peoples either disappeared into the forests or died out due to, due to disease and, and death and other things. And so I think with Viveras de Castro, that helps me with the, the ends of the world. And also thinking about um, Elizabeth Povinelli, Australian scholar. She has this um, book on Gaia and ground for theses of, of late liberalism, where she's talking about this historical apocalypse, the historical racism, the historical world that we've inherited because of all these things that have happened. And really trying to accentuate and emphasize that because it's almost like out of that is what the world that we're we're in now. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted, and I think so many of us want, to also think about these non-modern Western traditions and set up a diffraction pattern, not as an expert or scholar of any of these or an authentic practitioner, but just new ways to shake us up using some of these 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 other kinds of ways of thinking and, and living. And then seeing what happens, seeing what comes about from this, and knowing that even if 1492 isn't the origin, it's an origin. And it's an origin that we're still implicated in, even if we think about, you know, two things, one being the the hypocrisy or the irony of 1610 or 1600, 1610, whatever it is, where it's like you have this recent high or recent low of carbon in the atmosphere because like the so much of a carbon sinks were created because of the flourishing of the plants and and things, you know, natural environment in the in the American hemisphere because of the depopulation. And then also thinking about Deepesh Chakrabarty's great book, The Climate of History in a Planetary Age, which also came out too late for me to, to write about or include in the book. But him thinking about how, you know, ironically, we talk about development, we talk about the first world, we talk about Europe, the Americas. But if if Asia had developed as early as we did, then we'd be even closer to this climate threshold of fossil fuel and and emissions and devastating effects of the climate. And again, it's like that's part of that. You know, things don't necessarily work or make sense in a in a kind of what you'd expect or morally happy karmic kind of way. So we have to try to confront the messy reality and and try to come to terms with that as as best we can. Do you think that would have happened given the difference in uh, the kind of philosophical context or culture. But part of the question behind that question is I, I, I had wanted to ask you a bit more about the Confucian tradition that you engage with, because that was another part that we, I think, really just didn't engage properly in our reviewing. I think we both felt ill-equipped to do so. Um, it, it seems to me that part of the 
context of extractive capitalism that we find ourselves in today is a legacy of European philosophy. It's not the only thing that it's a legacy of, but the European philosophical context, which gets exported to the Americas, creates a conditions for uh, certain conditions of possibility. In terms of your research on Confucianism and Chinese philosophical traditions, I mean, it just as a kind of counterfactual, do you think that if the say the Chinese state had never been suffered the effects of European colonialism and had just been able to make its own way. Is it just planetary system dynamics of a certain population that gets us here? Or is it what's the impact of the kind of philosophical substrate of a society in terms of uh, what happens? Yeah, that's so hard. Um, And I think most of us want to say that the cultural or the philosophical or the ideological frameworks do shape and I think they have to, but I also think that we tend, at least as intellectuals, to overemphasize that. And I read a a book, I think his name was Mark Elwin, but he was a sinologist talking about sort of the landscape of the natural world and and animals in, in China and the disappearance of the elephants. And what he said is that really what the Chinese were doing in terms of their natural environment, and this is, I think, before this millennium, um, what they were actually doing didn't fit what their Confucian ethics would suggest. And so my materialist suspicion is that, yes, it, it makes a difference, but not as much of a difference as we like to think. And that doesn't mean that well, first of all, there's no purity, right? There's no isolation. There's no closed system. There's no Confucianism. There's no China separate from the rest of the world. So we do need a kind of global and even planetary perspective, but that doesn't completely abrogate or, or deny these, these smaller scale ones either. So I'm not trying to say that one particular one, you know, trumps or gets rid of the other, but that we need to try to make sense of this on multiple levels as, as much and as well as, as we can. And I know that the stuff on Qi, that, that little section was, was too dense and not really developed enough. I can tell you that there are people in China and people in Korea that have been, you know, sort of like resonated with that, resonated with me talking about Qi, either in the chapter or in, in other kinds of places and ways. And what I'm trying to do with this neo-Confucian idea of chi as a kind of psychophysical energy, which sometimes gets read as a monism, which then in the dominant orthodox neo-Confucian tradition gets subordinated to something like form, which is which is Li, and it gets read in an Aristotelian way. That probably isn't a, a fair reading of the, the guy that did that, Ju Xi, but that's how he's read and interpreted, not just in the West, but also uh, in, in China and other places. So trying to open up and liberate a certain kind of Qi philosophy and then connect this idea of Qi, which is very different from our modern notions of en- energy, but thinking about energetic transformation in relation to Qi is interesting to me, both cross-culturally also because chi does seem to resonate in some ways with how I'm trying to think about energy. Although, as I've been told, the, the Chinese tradition doesn't have a Confucian idea of entropy. They borrow that from the West in the 20th century, and that comes in kind of later. 
And so the entropy of it is then something that's 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 different and new. Um, and I think we have to understand energy in terms of, of of entropy. But I still think she is an interesting connection and kind of way to sort of think. And then and then also just like it kind of opens up to at least me thinking about having a kind of spiritual conversation of thinking about spirit in a way that's that's non-dual because you don't have this this duality or dualism between matter and spirit anymore. And you don't have that with chi. And I'm trying to suggest that new materialism can be used in that way as well. That non-duality, that sort of undifferentiated sense between these different terms is something that I've been kind of thinking a little bit about since we finished reading the book. Uh, I keep thinking about this relationship between entropy, energy, time. Because it's one thing to say we get the arrow of time from entropy, fine. I don't think it's right to say that entropy precedes time or causes time. I guess I don't really know how to differentiate in any kind of meaningful way between some of these terms. You know, once you latch on to this sort of imminent picture, mm-hmm. um, do you think there's a kind of almost mystical horizon when you start following that out? I mean, if you push the physics far enough you start to get into at least something like metaphysics, if not spirit, and you have to speculate. And that's what a lot of physicists are doing. And in a lot more creative and interesting ways than than philosophers sometimes, as Caputo has has pointed out a number of times uh, in his work, one is we know that our understanding of sort of fundamental physics points to something like quantum gravity, but we don't know what that is, that we need to find a way to make our understanding of quantum physics work with relativity theory, but there's a way in which they don't, and there's ideas and suggestions and possibilities, but we don't have a good a good theory yet, or even just with the multiverse and the Big Bang and, and all this other kind of stuff. So you reach a limit of what you know in whatever way or whatever field or whatever level, and then you can either just say, okay, that's the limit, I give up, you know, I'm gonna stop, or you can, you know, assert or analogize, you know, magic as above, so below, right? The, the way that things are below, that must be how they are above. And then you turn it around and say that the above is actually controlling the below. And I don't, I, I, I reject that in a simple way. Or you say, well, I'm going to have to think about this because I can't think of a limit or a line without thinking of something beyond that. And then how to constitute that from that side as well as from this side, even if there's a real sort of gradient difference of knowledge between this side and and that side. And so I just don't know how we don't get into some of these conversations and discussions. I just think of Mary Jane Rubinstein's book on pantheologies, how, you know, she keeps pushing Bruno Latour for talking about Gaia, not wanting to talk about religion and spirit, and yet not being able to avoid it. And then the other thing with Rubenstein, which is funny because she says when every time Deleuze is brought up, there's a certain like doesn't quite get it. Right. And yet what she's trying to do is exactly what Deleuze was trying to do was to think multiplicity as multiplicity and a kind of polytheistic pantheism or pantheology is really in line with how I'm reading Deleuze and what I think is happening. here. How do we think about multiplicity without simply reducing it to unity, even if we have to make use of a certain heuristic of unity, even in, you know, unity of energy of something like energy that's consistent. We have to do that. We can't not think that, right. but really trying to, to do that in, in as complex and multiple a way as we can. We talked quite a lot about 
that relationship between the one and the many. Mm-hmm. And uh, I felt like that was a sort of emerging conversation through several episodes that for Matt and I, I think with Mary Jane, it was, it was very productive. Mm-hmm. Mary Jane was, was trying to say that your take was kind of like uh panentheology if you want or pantheism if you want uh you choose and in her explanation of that there was a kind of um it felt to me like there was a claim that a kind of panentheism tended toward just wanted to preserve the one a, a bit more I, I just wanted to ask you about it. I mean, because I felt like you were saying, in the end, I'd go with a, a like a pluralist pantheism over a panentheism. But is that right? I mean, what? Yes, and what no. is- there is a sort of, you know, movement, right? There is a sort of directionality from panentheism to pantheism, and as well as trying to sort of draw in maybe a certain kind of heterodox process theology mainly with Keller, but also the kind of pantheism that, that, that Mary Jane is doing. And so I think that definitely in some ways I resonate with Mary Jane and I resonate with her critique of panentheism. And I think in any kind of like orthodox, it's like orthodox process theology, because it's not orthodox Christian theology, but there's a kind of orthodoxy that grows up sort of around this, you know, here's this reading of Whitehead or here's this theologizing of Whitehead. And I mean, I know, you you know, you had somebody talk critically about my book and, and, you know, not doing justice to it. And of course I don't, and I can, and, you know, that's not fair. And we, you know, we all have our sort of, you know, this is the tradition or the place that we write out of, and these are, you know, whatever, but, but I do, I do think that what, Keller is doing with her tradition in terms of opening it up to change is what I'm trying to do with radical theology. And so I don't think panentheism remains trying to preserve a kind of unity or oneness or allness in the way that you could certainly see in other examples of process theology. And, you know, maybe I'm pushing Catherine a little bit further than she'd want to go. But I do think that that's a very fruitful way to read them together. Not saying that panentheism and pantheism are the same, but it's almost like following through what we what's called radical theology, death of God theology, et cetera, et cetera, through these lenses creates something new. And this goes back to this whole question of time, right? And an arrow of time that you're asking about. Like it's not linear. But the reduction of gradient differences generates something like a sense of time. And as far as we can tell, or at least as far as I can tell from what physicists are telling us, is that it seems like space-time unravels at the tiniest scales, that, that it, it seems like space-time itself is an emergent property in right. some way, shape, or form. And I know that there's also a tension or a disagreement among the physicists that I've read between thinking about the fundamental processes of nature being thermodynamic and the fundamental processes of nature being more informational. And the information part, which also has entropy, which is, you know, there's a weird way in which entropy gets stuck between the two, but the the information part 
seems to give a little bit of an idealistic, almost even quasi-Platonic inflection to some of these arguments and discussions and conversations. The idea of, you know, it from bit, you know, that our reality is from, is generated by some kind of information. But I think that it's a little bit of a fantasy or a, seems a little bit naive to me to think about information, even though Shannon information is in some ways detached from a background or a context or an environment, it can't be completely separated from any environment whatsoever. And if we're talking about any kind of environment, then we're also talking about energy transformation and energy flow. I mean, for me, I have to come back to thermodynamics there. And I think that that is what gives us a, a way to make sense. But I can also see, just like with Chi and Lee, if you think about energy and form or Pattern is a better translation of that, that Chinese word, Li. But information and thermodynamics, you could also see them as two sides of the same coin. Yeah. And you can kind of pick up the other one and just kind of feed everything through that. You turn it around and it's it's not the same. It's, it's not the mirror image at all. There's a kind of distortion that happens. There's a kind of translation and transformation that happens. And I don't want to preclude that or cut that off because I can't be like, sure, confident or certain or dogmatic and say, this is the way, or this is the best way. But I'm saying like, I think that this is an interesting way to take energy, to use that as a way to kind of open up and cut across a lot of these different phenomena, think about them together. I think, again, radical theology, taking up something like panentheism through Keller's work, pantheism through Mary Jane's work, reading them together, not as the same, but again, the kind of series, right? Difference is always separated in terms of a series. And then it's the series that come together in a kind of intensity that then produces something new. So I don't know if I should say this, but Catherine, when she read this chapter, this last chapter said, you know, something like, oh, Mary Jane gets gets the last word or gets the, you know, like ends up being like favored and something like, like oh, she always does, or she often does or something like that. It was like, no, don't be so sure. Just because there's this and then there's this doesn't mean that I'm trying to develop it and culminate it and, and whatever. And, and just because I'm affirming Rubinstein doesn't mean I'm not also affirming Keller and vice versa. It's just affirming maybe in slightly different ways and different registers. Um, so, I mean, I agreed what Mary Jane said about the kind of critique of process theology, but I also think there's more interesting ways to think about and read the, the panentheism as well. I think that conversation, although sometimes it seems like it doesn't result in much between pantheism and, and panentheism, or these aren't exactly the same things, but similarly between radical theology and process theology, I think those conversations, uh, we're trying to engender more of that. And I think that can be really generative. And, you know, it's not so much that to what you're saying, I don't, I, I don't feel like I'm positioned well to make a decision for or against either one. As you're saying, I think there's something really productive in the holding of those two somewhat seemingly contradictory at times things. And it gets to, well, since we're talking about radical theology and entropy, when we were reading the chapter on physics, on entropy, kind of knowing eventually we're going to land in talking about radical theology, uh, you know, I started to think there's like perhaps these um, important resonance between entropy and the way that you describe it, you know, as irreversible and asymmetrical and kenosis, like a la Altizer, which I think fits that description arguably as well. 
in, in that sense, the entropy has this very death of God valence to it. And I don't remember you writing about that in the book, but I was wondering if that was something that you thought about maybe including. Yeah, um, I guess I'd be hesitant to use that language, although okay. I think I see what you're getting and I like it and I appreciate it. I would say, you know, this is one of the things I love about this podcast is because you're opening up theology to all these different conversations, all these different ways of thinking and opening up theology beyond, you know, not only different theological strains, but also theology beyond itself to all these other disciplines and ways of, of knowing and thinking. And then going back to even the name, you know, if we think about something like a war machine, right, it's not war in a literal sense for Deleuze and Guattari and a thousand plateaus, but it is the nomenology and is this kind of like pushing this resistance to the state, which comes back to this whole question of the state, right? Because you're trying to exceed the state form and you're trying to open up to something else. You're trying to exceed, you know, anything that becomes concretized as radical theology and you're trying to open up to something else, et cetera, et cetera. So, I think a kind of canonic movement is interesting. I think the problem is that when you use that word in the context of theology and a kind of biblical theology, even in terms of death of God, there's this kind of sense of, and it's, you know, we could get into Hegel, but also what Deleuze calls like a theological plan, where it's just like, here's what's happening up here where God decides to undergo this process and and die and come down and take the form of a human being. And it's like, it's right. the... That would be the narrative form of it. If somebody wanted to yeah. kind of work with it within, within a more explicitly theological space. Right. So then if you explained how we could think about kenosis, you know, detached from that narrative, then I think for me, that would be more more interesting. And, and so again, you know, in terms of Deleuze, like in terms of imminence rather than transcendence radically eminent kenosis as a self-emptying, not just of God, of everything. Just yeah, and one that's not necessarily a product of intention as well. Right. Yeah. Sorry, you yeah. just hurt my you just hurt my brain for a second. Sorry, I didn't mean to do that, but that's kind of what the book does also and does mean to do is to kind of make our brains hurt. Um hopefully that's a positive thing, at least in the long run. You yeah, definitely you, achieved that claim. <laughs> yeah, well, you have to force people to think, right? Something forces us to think. That's that's right. Uh, and so I appreciate that. And that kind of lines up with the crucible as the, what is it? Crisis is the crucible for change. Yeah, thank you. There's more, there's something else on that. But just backing up a little bit, you're talking about the, um, the cybernetic conversation around entropy. Somewhere in the book, I think you have this line about there being a hermeneutical dimension at the heart of reality, something along those lines. And I find that really interesting to think about in a kind of expanded or materially rendered kind of deconstruction. Uh, something we touched on briefly at the end of our, our last conversation has to do with maybe an area of future research that we we're talking about, looking at cybernetics and entropy. And uh, it brings to mind for me something like Barad's and her phenomenological hauntology. Mm -hmm. now, I don't really have good language for this yet, but I, I think there's some kind of like emerging philosophical project that has something to do with translation or semiotics. I'm not really sure. I'm not really sure what the right questions to ask yet are. Uh, what do you, yeah, what do you think about any of that? Except to affirm your question and to say that, again, my reading of Deleuze, he always makes these distinctions, right? He always you know, talks about this and this, but it's never an opposition. Yeah. And so it's like you're elaborating, you know, okay, 
you're so in some ways a critique of cybernetics or a critique of information theory because even though it's talking about entropy, it loses sight of energy. And so I'm talking about energy, I'm talking about thermodynamics, I'm talking about metabolism, right, as a way to show some of the limitations of just taking a cybernetic or information approach. But that doesn't mean that we get rid of information, right? And again, like I said, you could just you could do almost the same thing from the standpoint of, of information, but I think it'd be a lot more interesting if you're also taking into account the things that I'm talking about with energy and thermodynamics and, and metabolism. And I think that there's some people that are trying to do this. Obviously, as a biochemist, I think Nick Lane's work is fantastic, but Sarah Armani Walker is working with Paul Davies at Arizona State. And we just had a, a student from UCA, fantastic, who went there. They're working on a kind of you know planetary system science and a kind of fundamental physics that seems to be based on information that's dealing with thermodynamics. And I think that they would emphasize the information a little bit more, as I understand it, than the thermodynamics. And I would do the opposite, but I still think it's a really exciting and vital and, and, and interesting conversation and, and way to, to sort of work through. So I would definitely encourage you to do that more than, than certainly than I did. And there's people that you could find that would be much more knowledgeable about, about that. I wanted to ask a, a question about Shannon's uh, information entropy in relation to the idea of the multiplicity, which, as I understood it, was this subtraction. So you talked about the creation of multiplicity as a subtraction from what I understood to be a set of potentialities. Mm-hmm. Um, and my understanding of Shannon entropy is that it's the difference from what you thought you were going to get, which is what tells you the information. Uh, it felt to me like there was maybe a, a, that they were analogous in the sense that you have a, a whole set of potential information that you could receive, but in the end you end up getting one, and that's what gives you that's what creates the reality. Or uh, and then I get stuck because I'm not sure what the word is there. But I mean, do, do you yeah. recognize that analogy, or is that? No, I, I actually agree with it. And I think for me, the most interesting thing, when I read Gleick's book on, on information theory, history of theory of flood, was this idea that, okay, in terms of entropy, as it's defined in information theory, entropy is information because it's surprise, because it's not, oh, everything that's known, because the whole point is what you don't know. And the entropy is what gives you the surprise, is what gives you what you don't know. And that actually is information. And so I think that you could describe it as a kind of subtraction from all the potential, all of the possible knowledge that, that's out there, because that's not what you want. You don't want that, because if you just reproduce that, you don't learn anything. You have to get something different, something new, something that sticks out. And that's, that is entropy, because it uses the, the same kind of mathematical logarithmic formula that that Boltzmann created for thermodynamics, there's a real like conflation confusion among the two that I think really has to be teased out. But I do think there's a fascinating connection that that could be done there. Hmm. So as a as a follow-up to that, one of the conversations, one of the most interesting bits I thought of the conversation with Mary Jane was around the question of like an ontology of energy. Like like so she wanted to turn it into a Heideggerian register and talk about, you know, there isn't actually being it's just a sort of postulate that allows us to talk about beings um there isn't actually energy it's just a postulate that allows us to talk about energetics or energies in certain physical phenomena um 
And so this idea of a subtraction from is a kind of, well, the, the, the potentiality, they're not really there. It's just a way for us to come back to the thing that is. Um, so going back to the, the kind of analogy with Shannon Entropy, as I really like the way you put that, a surprise. I mean, is the surprise in that? Did the thing exist before it became surprising? Um, I'm not sure that's a great question. I think I'm, try, I'm trying to think through the ontology of. I, I wonder um, if the uh, I wonder if Barad's apparatus is helpful here because mm, I think okay. I think I think this is in a certain sense a phenomenological question as much as it is an ontological question. I'm not sure how to kind of tease those apart, but just I'm just introducing that as a term. Yeah, I think I agree with with both you of you and with Mary Jane in that we can't help the way we think, thinking ontologically. And so it's almost like we have to posit something as being. And so I start out and I do that. Okay, well, what if being is energy, energy transformation, energy is always dynamic, but then what happens when we subtract from that and look at all these specific kinds of things and set up a kind of differentiation and a series and intensities and things like that. So I think that it's a little bit of a heuristic. That's why I'm saying, I don't, for me, energy is not a substance. It's not a monism. It's not a unity. It's just this became an interesting way for me to think across a whole range of different problems. And I think that we do that all the time. And we almost have to think of this as something that's actually existing or being. And like you said, with broad, it's almost like, right, the apparatus makes a cut. And then what it cuts off seems to be the, the pre-given ontology from the effect or whatever, but it doesn't really you know, make sense. I mean, it does make sense, but it also doesn't make sense to think about that being, I mean, it certainly wasn't already cut up and it almost doesn't make sense to think of it as something at all, but it does have this virtual ontology or spectral or whatever when we're, when we're trying to make sense of it. And then the other thing I wanted to say, which makes it even more complicated in some ways, is how what Malibu does with Heidegger, because it's like the ontological difference is the exchange of being and beings. It's not like you have being, and then you have beings in a kind of like hierarchical, semi-Platonic sense. But it's not like you get rid of being and you just have the beings in a kind of differentiated local arrangement because you're constantly interchanging. You're constantly exchanging being for being. Do you think that's consonant with a kind of, what's the Whiteheadian thing, that uh, the many are increased by one and, uh, and uh, what, what is the phrase? Some one and are increased by one. Yeah, because it, they begin again in a way, if you really follow that through, if you keep with that. And I think that sometimes Whiteheadians get stuck on the on the one, right? Right. And don't, you know, keep going as it were. Another way of thinking about it is like, you know, Derrida, more in terms of language, but constantly substituting different terms, you know, so it's like you, you're going to get caught up on difference, but so then we're going to use this other word, we're going to use this other word, we're going to use this other word, because you're substituting, and you're trying to explain a similar process, but you're also trying to explain it differently, because using this term, and all the connotations that it has, and the history that it has, and language, and philosophy, and politics, and everything else, is going to have different effects by sort of following that through. And so there's going to be seen, it's going to seem like, you know, you're telling the same kind of story, you know, in a way you kind of are because of that's the process, right? And it gets boring if you're just seeing it as repetition of the same. And yet, if you're actually doing it an interesting way, because energy can be being, right? Or information can be being. 
and then you're telling a different story. Right. But you're exchanging, you're exchanging information as information with the being of information itself. I'm trying to do that as much as I can with energy, but I'm trying to say that's not the only way to do it. And in fact, it would be boring if that was the only way to do it. And I'd rather people do interesting and creative and transformative things with other categories than just say, oh, I'm going to say what Crockett says about energy because that yeah. is sterile and boring. Well, maybe that's why the subtitle is a new materialist cosmotheology, not the <laughs> new materialist cosmotheology. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to write. I'm no interest in a kind of systematic theology. Yeah. Well, we won't accuse you of being a systematic. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm, we're running out of time here. I've really enjoyed our conversation. I think we can we could go even more. Can I, can yeah, I say, go for it. And again, I just to, to resonate with what Mary Jane said about sort of me being like, you know, Descartes in his hut, you know, like at the end and it being a little bit more personal and it being a little bit more like, you know, a, a work of a kind of maturity or age. And, you know, obviously we all feel our mortality in different ways at different times. Um, but getting to a point where you can kind of look back and maybe think about what you've done and it, and it does, it doesn't stop, but it kind of slows down a little bit in terms of a kind of, of, of process. And also thinking about that, I mean, she invokes Descartes trying to, you know, write his meditations, but also Deleuze in what is philosophy does something like that too at the beginning where he invokes well, it's Deleuze and Guattari, but we know that Deleuze basically wrote this book himself because Guattari was sick. But Deleuze is like, you reach a certain point Having done philosophy, he's like, okay, well, what is philosophy? You know, now I'm going to try to really think about what this is and what this means. And so thinking about a kind of survey, you know, or a kind of span of time, which for me started maybe in the middle of the first decade, 20th century, so over 15 years, thinking about energy, struggling with energy, getting into it mainly in terms of, you know, peak oil and energy resources, and then going all over from there, and then finally getting a chance to write the book about it, because I've been working on it for so long, and then getting to the point where you're saying, well, what is it all about? Or what am I doing is, is, a, is a kind of an interesting way to sort of see that. And for Mary Jane to see that and to reflect on that one makes me feel old, which, you know, I am. But also, I think there's something very, very insightful and, and right about that. And even just trying to push myself to write a little bit more personally at the end of that, the end of the Derrida book, where I have a kind of personal afterwards. And, you know, again, just thinking about how each of us are implicated singularly in all of these things that, that we do and write. Yeah, the end of the book was beautiful. Yeah, it was. It was, uh, I think that's one thing I would say about the book as a whole. I mean, it was intellectually very stimulating i mean brilliant I, I really really enjoyed it but i think as i reflected in several of the episodes i mean it, it 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 did get to me and i think that the fact that you were able to write personally and and not just when you were doing that explicitly but i think that it, it, that was inflected through through a lot of the writing and um yeah i've i think i've changed as a result of uh, of encountering it so i'm i'm incredibly grateful clayton Thank you. I don't know that there's, I don't know there's a more satisfying response to anything that you do than that. And, you know, again, it's, I don't want disciples, I don't want acolytes, I don't want anybody to, you know, convert to 
something like a crocodology, but I would love it if people like you and others would take some of these things and then use them and make use of them and do your own thing and change the way that, that not just you, but others think. That, that's really exciting. Well, crocodology, if nothing else, has a wonderful ring to it. <laughs> I think that was going to be the original of grammatology of, of crocodology. <laughs> a couple but, of my students came up with that around the early 2010s. Nice. All right. This has been great. Um, maybe you can just say really quickly before you go, well, where do you go from here? Intellectually? That's a good question. I don't know. Yeah. I do want to write something I promised for Westar, you know, with the gods, my work with the God Seminar, that I try to write something like God and energy that would be a little bit more accessible, a little bit less technical. And so that's one thing that I'd like to do. And I'd also like to continue some of these obviously been going to other countries and other places, but engaging with, with other forms of thought and continue with that kind of tradition as well. So that's kind of where I am right now. Yeah. Great. Well, it's with a little bit of sadness, we, we bring this to a close. <laughs> Thanks again. Yeah. Really incredible. Really, really appreciate your support um, with the project. It was tremendous. Really. Thank you. Take care. Yeah. Thank you. All right, yeah. y'all have a good one. Okay, you too. All right, bye. Take care.